Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. During our check-in, I wanted to just talk about like really what has been happening in this past couple of days since the election and just like overall, like how our family has responded. Um, a couple of days ago, I posted on our Instagram page and Twitter, um, like this whole thing about like my parents specifically, always like this whole gaslighting thing and comment of always, you know, like if any time I express any concern or I tell them about, you know, a critical thinking, like, you know, either statement or, you know, feelings about what has happened in the media, like in this whole past, like four years, just anything critical or being critical about media or anything happening. And their response with this whole no pasa nada thing, which if you don't speak Spanish, what it means is like, um, nothing's going to happen. Um, or it's not that serious, really, that's like the, or you're being dramatic, you know, like you can, it's, it's the sentiment that that's what it, it, it transcends, like transmits, you know. Um, so, and it's, and it's unfortunate, because I think, it, I think they don't, they don't see, and they don't want to recognize, really, the responsibility that they hold, and, you know, their thoughts and actions, and in particular in this election, I think for them, it's it's just so much easier to just say like, to deny and be in denial and also just reject, you know, any criticism of it, of saying that the election was gonna be fine because, you know, they have already survived four years of Trump. So four more years, you know, relatively is just gonna be the same thing, right? And we're coming from like family, as we mentioned before, like where as immigrants, we're coming from, you know, another national government and state government that has also been equally as problematic because the US and Mexico are like BFS in terms of, you know, exploitation and all that stuff. Son, son amigos in that sense. And so I think in general, like we keep normalizing this number of abuse and the hypocrisies of a ton of people and the fact that their response boils down to no pasa nada and i'm like no pasa nada but not because of you you know and i think it's such an insult to all the organizers especially in this election and before um and and organizers in general like it doesn't have to you know just circle or revolve around the presidential um, election or the president position it could be anything really and at any level and them just saying that it boils down to that, I think that has been so frustrating because if we would have left and kept that same energy and the same involvement, the same everything that we did back in 2016, as we saw how the numbers were showing up in the first few hours since the results of the polls were coming in, I'm like, si hubiera pasado algo, something would have definitely not been the result that we've gotten this time around if people hadn't organized and particularly black women and femmes who have done the groundwork in all states putting in the effort of making sure not only 
people were registered for, to vote, but also like had their had been informed about their voting, you know, uh, deadlines, things that they needed to do, you know, to make sure that everything was, you know, done correctly and on time. And the fact that they had been campaigning and rallying behind a bunch of candidates as well to fill in seats um, in different positions, you know. And so I think if it were up to my family and specifically my parents, we would have never had this result because they, they're not involved to the point that the only civic engagement that they have is through voting. And they don't even vote themselves because oftentimes they're just relying on their children to let them know on how to vote because they usually are copying us, not necessarily them looking it up either. They only focus on the presidential part and I keep telling them that that's not really the only position we need to really, you know, pay attention to and inform ourselves of. And, and the amount of time and effort that it takes for us to be informed all year round in all these issues, because so many things change on top of like everything that we need to also figure out in our own lives. Like it takes a lot of effort and time, but again, even my partners, you know, family and parents and my own parents, like they're just, you know, we give them all the resources and all the help. And it's such a like slap in the face for them not to like only, you know, give us the acknowledgement of the work that it takes to like even fill all of that stuff out because it's expected labor from us. But they also dismiss it. And then on top of that, say, no pasa nada, no va a pasar nada. And I'm like, well, of course not, because you are in a position of privilege. Um, and that's the part where we've seen a lot of white Latinos are actually in that boat of the way that we saw the results of even the Latinx, the so-called Latinx boat, right? So, I mean, Ariana, I don't know what, I mean, what are your thoughts or what has been, you know, the conversations that you had with your, with your family about all of this? Well, it's pretty similar. I, I, I completely hear what you're saying about our, our parents feeling like they're, that their vote or their, that they have no impact on the next election, right? And I think to some extent, I, I kind of can see where they're coming from. They haven't walked in our shoes, right? Haven't had to navigate institutions where we're constantly being left out or where it's not as explicit. I feel like probably, at least with my parents, it's uh, been in a way where they haven't had to or haven't wanted to, you know, rattle the boat um, because of their migration status. They kind of have kept a low profile. And I think in the macro of things, they feel very small, like, uh, especially now that they're that they they are U.S. residents, I feel like they feel like oh a sense of comfort, right? Which is something that some of our family members or community members, once they get papers, might feel like, hmm, well, I'm no longer that person, right? I'm no longer I don't no longer fall in that category. I'm in a different place, or maybe they honestly don't know what it means or haven't really given much thought. Um, I had a similar conversation with my mom on Wednesday night uh, when they were watching Univision and they were watching the election um, numbers coming in and 
you know, I, I, my aunt was there and I saw the, the TV and I was like, I can nervios, you know, like how nerve wracking. Right. And my mom, her response was, Oh, you too. Something to that, to that extent. And I'm like, yeah, it's nerve wracking to find out who's going to lead this country because, and my mom's like, it doesn't really matter. Like, what can we do about it? And I'm just like, that's the problem, right? This, it does affect us because DACA is constantly being threatened, constantly being attacked. It's, you know, I, my future and my, what's at stake is very much dependent on who's going to lead the country next. Like, it's been four torturous years for me, (laughs) you know, and and I tried to explain to her, you know, it does impact us and, and the policies, the bans, the cage kids uh, along the border, the, you know, all of these processes that have been just complicated, right? It's, they've been manipulated. And, and I was just uh, a little appalled, taken aback about my mom's response and um, this is someone who is, you know, eventually going to become a U.S. citizen in, you know, five years, you know, and we'll eventually have uh, the opportunity to vote. And so for me, it was just a little alarming that she thought that way. And um, I feel like my dad had a, a, when I explained, you know, made some points, I think he kind of like had a better, agreed with me and, um, but yeah, and then um, what was interesting too was that my aunt was like, oh, did Brian, you know, what did my brother and my sister vote? Because they're US citizens and they're of age. And I said, yeah, I made them, right? Made them in the way that one reminded them, one helped them register, one, you know, we reviewed the, uh, what was it, the proposals, we reviewed the candidates and and we spent time, you know, studying each of them and and, and doing our homework and, you know, I couldn't vote, but both of them could. And we just sat down, spent, you know, a couple hours on the, the ballots and my sister and my brother both sent them back. And um, my, my aunt was like, I think we asked if her daughter had voted and she said, no, she didn't want to. Again, I'm just like, these kids, um, it's, yeah, I'm just like, it's not even an option. It's such a privilege to vote and um, it's their right. And I wish I could. And, you know, um, it's just interesting how people don't think that their vote matters or that they don't see how their vote also impacts the local elections. Right. And it's just unfortunate that there's all this, all this mixture of feelings and thoughts and the Latino community, even with our relatives, right? Like even the Republican aunts and uncles that we may have that, you know. It's just the fact that even within like your own, your own experience, like the fact that someone who is not able to vote is the one having to do the work and encouraging folks who can to do their own like once in a year, you know, every, because most of the time, even folks are just only vote for presidential elections, as opposed to the other times that we have elections. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so insulting, you know, they're just like knowing that 
people are taking for granted what they have, that they don't realize the gravity of the situation, that the people who are the most affected are the ones who are doing the most work in making sure that this shit doesn't crumble to the ground and for our communities, for, yeah. for, for the people that even within your own family, your family is only looking out for every single individual's own interest, but not really because they don't even see the long-term implications and nuance of like that their long-term interest is at stake, that it's threatened constantly every day and that they are just going to make do and just like, well, I don't know how we can't make rent, but somehow like, they're like, oh, we'll just figure it out, you know, because usually another family member is picking up that labor for them to not even realize how much effort it even takes in the first place. And so like, that's the part that has been so frustrating for me because I'm like, do y'all not see like the inequities here? Like even in our own household, right? And even our own friends, they've mentioned like how many of ours of our friends were like, I can't even vote. And I'm like telling these people to vote. Like that's, that's so like, y'all can't even do your own work. You know, like you can't even do our own like effort and privilege the fact that y'all like, are growing up with cell phones like the fact that y'all are growing up with some wi-fi like which is cannot be said from like our own childhood that in those times there was no way you know we would have been able to be informed or tapped into all these issues and the fact that we have to consistently tell them to do this you know and i think i mean that that is a part of like where I'm more invested more and more so of like trying to make sure that this information is available uh, regardless of, you know, who ends up hearing it because most of this work ends up benefiting white people. You know, like whenever we make, you know, any content that we have or any workshops or like my, my, my actual work, who shows up? White people. And then, you know, like at the end of the day, I'm like, this is great for access and information, but really it does not get to the people that we're actually intending this work to do. Funding doesn't really get to the people that we're, you know, asking, you know, people to show up for. Um, and I think that's where, like, especially with my, you know, our family members or even like, we need to start making an audit and start really thinking about, you know, we just need to stop trying to beg people who do not see our existence, who do not understand us, who do not unconditionally love us for that attention, you know, and little by little trying to like build your own autonomy with it. And, you know, everybody's at different stages in terms of their relationship with their family or their ties. But when it comes to like even the selections, I haven't even called my parents because I'm like, I don't even want to hear it. You know, like I've only heard these things secondhand from like texting my younger sister because she's the only one that is now like really opening her eyes about like all these things that are happening and, and tapping into the information and wanting to listen and learn um, as opposed to everybody else that I'm like, when it comes down to it, my family really does not even know and accept me. And if I... If you have a sense that if you were to say your true thoughts and feelings and they don't accept you, that in itself is an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, just how, you know, Dr. Tama talks about, you know, in her homecoming podcast, I'm like, we need to come home to ourselves. We need to start healing. We need to start evolving evolution. You don't do that evolution spiritually without them because, 
I found out way more family members that have been coming out brave and courage and with the courage of, you know, the Trump thing to come out as Trump supporters more so than before. And then saying that we need to be friends with each other, even if we have different political views and shit. And I'm like, it has been a condition everywhere in this world for them to start thinking that that's okay. Um, For them to feel that they need to benefit and start kissing ass because what does white supremacy do like it only gives us the priority of appearances of aesthetics of what are people going to think about us you know you know like we need to stop doing that and cut ties because you know in our previous episodes that we made i made a comment about you know that it's going to take white people to acknowledge all this stuff and i'm like i stand corrected i'm like if anything, especially in this election, it has shown us that all the pol- like the politicians and the organizers everywhere, and it's mostly Black femmes and women who have, they did not wait for white people to start learning because clearly no one has learned shit, you know? And even with my own family, even when I'm trying to educate them, like they understand it in the moment, like they, they look like they get it and they're like, oh yeah, yeah. And then five minutes later, they're doing the same shit. So I'm like, I'm just not going to wait for anything. Because again, the con- why would you want to change your whole life being when you're benefiting it? I mean, come on, think about it. Why would you go away? Like, even with my dad, like, just even in the micro level, why would he change if everyone in my household is catering to him? Mm. And not holding him accountable and not, you know, telling him like, screw this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to participate. Why? He lives in a delusion. He doesn't know anything else. He doesn't know and- anything else. He doesn't want to. Right. He hears it, but, you know, what does my mom do? Cater to him above her own feelings because at the end of the day I'm like I'm out of the household you know like whatever y'all do that's your marriage like I know for sure that you know you're my parents but other than that like I just do I have no responsibility on what y'all decide to do with each other mm-hmm. and how you you interact with one another it's hell of a toxic relationship but again I'm like if I continue to just let them just do things just to make them happy I'm like, I'm not being honest with myself. So I'm like, if the more you just divest from allowing people to live in this delusion and, you know, catering to them, stop ass kissing, you know, like all these things, like we need to start doing that because clearly like no one is changing their minds. Their social justice content makes no sense. Like when everything around them is speaking to a different reality, like our behaviors and our actions and the things that we invest our energy towards I am done, you know, centering whiteness and like trying to learn more and more like, you know, screw y'all, y'all can still stay however you want to stay men too, you know, because clearly look at the numbers, even like men everywhere have voted way more for Trump in every category, which also like to think about like men too, like it's very binary. So we don't even know like the exact numbers because Again, the data is definitely not well collected and well represented, but more men in general are like voting for Trump. Like Latinas came out way more, Muslim women came out more, Asian women, you know, Black women came out way more, and femmes like came out more voting for Democrats, which I mean, not even a great party, but it's like came out way more 
against Trump. Yeah. For him. And excluding all of these um, indigenous women, indigenous people from, you know, the categories of who's voting for who, like they don't exist. Otherwise, like something else. You know, yeah, something else. Um, I was reading a meme, like all the memes. I love them this <laughs> this week um, by at Talbert Swan that said, no matter how this turns out, the closeness of this election affirms that America is a racist country, period. Most white people in America could care less about integrity, morality, character, equality, liberty, or justice, only about preserving white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Or the other one by at Litter Ellie. Um, I'm furious at people saying we've survived four years of Trump. We can survive four more. I've known a lot of people who have not survived, whether because of COVID, immigration policies, hate crimes. It's all violence. A lot of people have not survived. I'm just like, I'm right there with you all. Yeah, and just alone this week, I've had way more people like communicate that they have either been in contact with someone who has COVID and waiting for results or who have contacted COVID. And I'm like, how can you all say that you've survived clearly when most of the appointments that I have with students have been huge levels of stress, you know, huge health, you know, concerns that they've had. They're doing terrible in in classes like how can you say that you survive that's not living and that's when I commented you know in and I reposted that same like post that you just talked about in my own like personal page and I was like how how is that living how have we normalized this abuse to the point that we think that just because you're breathing just because you know you are you know alive you know you know like you are surviving and that you're thriving you know like that's like, that's just so sad to the point that we, we're normalized that, those conditions, the crumbs that we've gotten, the fact that we're just like, oh, like, I'm not, you know, too in debt, like, I'm not homeless, you know, I'm not blank, blank, like, the bar has been so low to the point that I'm like, you could be all of those things if one little thing, you know, crumbles in your life, your whole thing would spiral out of control. And the fact that we don't think about, even within our own families, like we definitely have someone that we know and that we've come in contact that, you know, has had big, huge impacts in our own lives. Like now, like my priority is every single month budget, you know, a certain amount of money so I can donate directly to people. So I can every so often send some money to my friends and say, hey, you know, like treat yourself to whatever you need. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, this whole year, I think ever since, um, March, ironically, I've done, I've just tried to focus on myself, mm-hmm. my self-care, my happiness, what brings me joy, because every day and every week, it's just, it was just so daunting, just with everything, with the outcome of DACA, um, mm-hmm. with it, you know, being, still looked at by the current administration you know they weren't satisfied with the the response uh with the election like even this week um it felt like such a long week it felt like from the the anticipation and then i knew that the day of the election it wouldn't have been like 
you know, people were nervous on the day of the election. I'm like, that's not when we're going to feel the aftermath. It's the day after and thereafter, right? It's all the days after <laughs> the election. The night. At this point, because I'm yeah. like, like how much of the conversations in media has been like, how is Trump going to react? Like if he's going to like blow up and like, you know, the fact that we're even thinking that should just indicate like, this isn't okay you know like this is the fact that we're all like worried and and the things that we've been like having to share with our with our circles have been like have you been prepared for you know emergencies um and we're not even talking about natural disasters either because what has happened in central america with the hurricane um yeah that's going to hit florida too and most likely you know in texas and and you know the south that south part of the country and other places like we're going to experience the the coldest you know a cold winter um I'm like if people haven't taken their flu shot like it's just like it's not just this part and we still have potential fires in the future you know like in specifically in our area in California where we're at um and it's like I've been trying to prepare as much as possible to you know be able to have extra food because the digo like people are you know panic buying and or this time more prepared to try to like make sure that they have money and food um at home because nunca sabemos como like the you know people are going to react in in either side right we didn't know bef like before the election people were talking about like some uprisings and you know uh -huh. Boarding up, which I'm like, y'all really think that, you know, protesters are really going to loot your ugly ass, you know, purses and shit. Tell me why my, my Apple store appointment got canceled three times this week from Wednesday, Thursday, yesterday at um, three. When we're having like, you know, like protesters and organizers, specifically those people, not the people that are coming in trying to like rile them up or you know, deviate the conversation. It's like, do you really think that their priority is let's let me go get an Apple Watch? Let me go get, you know, sneakers on our way out. Like let me go get a shirt, an ugly ass shirt, you know? Um that's not the priority. It might be priority for the Trump protesters because we did yeah. video after video, them going and taking advantage of the opportunity to loot. So really? And I'm like, that's just so dumb. I'm like, and then people, you know, empathizing with businesses. I'm like, do y'all know how businesses work? I'm just so confused that like, y'all are so invested in being a millionaire, but do not understand what it takes to be a millionaire or what million dollars are in the first place, the amount, you know, cut their taxes in so many different ways have gotten, you know, um, that like stimulus or, you know, packages are being bailed out so many different times from the government and y'all are worried that they're gonna loot them. I'm like, do you know how much they exploit their own employees in order for them not to like pay them a fair wage? Do you not know that they have insurance? Insurances, because they have multiple. I'm like, honey, the, they, they have insurance to cover the lost costs in the first place. They just don't wanna like, make sure that you know that, start thinking more about businesses and property than the actual people. Um, in a capitalistic society, looting them would be justice. But it's just like so interesting because we, we've been talking about like, you know, California. And I think I want to like to point out that in, even in California, how we're saying that all these woke people and, 
I mean, well, first of all, the center of the wokeness has been like in LA and mostly the Bay Area. And I want you all to know that Northern California is very Republican. Um, there are some sections all around us where there's Republicans in the first place. The Central Valley is definitely um, heavily Republican, but there's still Republicans in any city in any place, first of all, or conservatives or, you know, the far right, whatever they are, um, they're everywhere. And the fact that 55% of white women have voted for Trump more this time than last time makes me like super like suspicious about what all these white people are doing that said that they were going to do things over the summer. Again, just all performative. Um, the fact that Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham are re-elected after everything. And it's, again, mostly white people voting for them. So we're not even talking about now they are caring about voter suppression just because it doesn't fit their narrative and the things that they want it to fit. Now they're about that. The agenda, which earlier before they were saying, don't vote and don't send your mail-in ballot and stuff like that. So I'm like, so many hipócritas and... Um, specifically from Napa County. I mean, I think that's the thing that we need to worry about is also, I mean, I can only speak for California because I, I only know California um, politics, but I'm pretty sure, you know, any other state has their own issues in terms of, you know, the measures and the people that got voted in. Um, California is this whole progressive woke state, but then we have all these like measures that didn't pass. Like the fact that the first measure uh, the cell, the stem cell research one, people wanted to make billions of dollars to these research foundations in, they didn't even state what kind of research they were doing. And then people are like pro-livers and I'm like, do you know what stem cells are? That's the kind of like lack of critical thinking and education that we're missing in this, in the state where I'm like, do you even know what stem cells are? And millions, billions of dollars to this research to do what? We don't even know. The thing didn't even say. And then we didn't want, you know, minors, 17-year-olds that were about to turn 18 to actually be able to vote. Um, we didn't pass that one. We didn't pass the affirmative action one, um, either Prop 16. Like, passed Prop 22 with the whole Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Grubhub, you know, app-based, you know, exploitation. Um, so I'm like, we have so much to do in terms of educating ourselves, educating our people, um, having this information be widespread. But I think it's also like, we wouldn't have known Prop 16 was a thing if I hadn't known it from a colleague in higher ed talking about this, going to their kickoff thing that they had, which I mean, it was very, very small and very like not well organized when we were put into groups to see like how they're gonna do it. Like we need to stop, especially if you're in higher ed or in a higher, like in a position of power to have all this information and only share it with your five friends who share the same background as you. Because if people understood what Prop 16 was, we would all benefit from it. Um, and especially people of color. But the majority of white and Asians voted no for it without knowing fully what it meant. Because that, that prop encompassed a lot of things and would have benefited in a lot of areas, not just higher ed. It was always, and it also was working towards getting equal pay uh, across like all genders in the workplace as well. And also not everybody knew what it was because the wording was all confusing. That's what I was gonna say. When I was helping my sister with, fill out her ballot, a lot of things I had to look up 
um, and, and look at reputable sources to see what they were encouraging their followers to do because the language was confusing. Is it, is it good or is it bad? Like they were hard, hard. What, and are what, they really- what does their family do? Right. Like when they'll, and I think this is, I've seen a lot of people do this. They're like, Oh, you know what? I'm going to just vote no to everything because it just doesn't sound right. <laughs> you know, like they're just going off of the title and not really reading who, who is supporting it. How much money did they back it up with? Um, and also critiques of it. Like, first of all, who's critiquing it? Because even the measures on the changing the commercial property taxes, I'm like, how many of y'all have commercial properties? Businesses get so many tax funds and cuts because of like how it benefits them. I'm like, and this is why the actual people who are poor end up providing way more taxes than, than businesses because they can write it off. If, if whoever wrote it was supposed, the intention was to make the access bigger. I'm like, y'all need to stop putting wording that's so the thing with my with my, my my siblings was that they got their ballot on the 5th of November, I'm sorry, October, and they sent it back that same day. And a lot of these organizations that are, you know, active and, and, and you know, advocating for the community, they didn't send out their suggestions or recommendations in advance. Like they, I started seeing more of them after that, you know, a few days after uh, October 5th. And by then my sister had already submitted hers. I'm like, you can't be all like sending me. And then Biden's group texted me the day before election. Hey, have you voted? Can we count on your support? I'm like, so just like, can y'all get it all together and like reach out to us ahead of time? Because right now it definitely like, it leaves you like a bad impression. And even like our groups, like the way that we organize, I mean, everyone more needs to really understand the whole election process, the voting thing. And also if you are, you know, campaigning for a group, like you all need to do work way before. Like even our own friend who went, you know, up for election, I think I'm like you, like you all need to start making sure the community is engaged from the moment you go into the office, you know, to the point that you're going to get reelected again. Like the community needs to know what you're doing. And it can't be just all just talked around in the same circles that you have pretending and thinking that everyone's on the same page. And I'm like, no, we're not because we're not involved in the same meetings. We don't know what you're doing. Like, we don't know what the props have been, but if I hadn't been involved in, you know, in that meeting, I would have not known what the work has been doing beforehand. I'm like, the average person does not have enough time to be going to these meetings and even more so like in Zoom, like if you get the wrong link, you're not going to be able to make it there. And the fact that in Napa County, Mike Thompson, who represents the fifth district, a cop son has been mentioning that, you know, he supports our nation's very like nationalistic, you know, comments. He's a Democrat who has first been elected since 1992, since I was a kid in elementary school. Um, this guy has not had a strong contester to vote him out and to elect someone else. Like everybody else has been a Republican, which I mean, for sure, like in that county, they're not going to vote for, um, especially not with someone who's a Mike Thompson, who's like way more right than left for sure. Um, and, you know, in Santa Rosa, in the city of Santa Rosa, I mean, specifically, cause I'm talking about specifics in these counties where I have the most experience in, I'm still learning, um, 
East Bay and also South Bay stuff. I'll let y'all know when I have information about those. But um, an ethnic studies uh, with a cop session program has been, you know, is it, is it new? Because you know more about it, Ariana. But I'm like, how do you have ethnic studies with a cop who created this program is, you know, a, a white Latina? And that's what you got away from, like, all this information that we've been, you know, sharing. I mean, it's in silos. Like, we also have to think about more than just, like, you know, who's representing us and which identity they claim to have. And, like, we also have to think about positionality and what is the politic that we want because, how we mentioned, like, representation is not going to save us, y menos with this kind of politic. Yeah, I don't know what the plan is for... I don't have the specifics as to who is implementing, who came up with this grand idea that cop, um, ethnic studies with a cop would be great. Um, I do know, you know, that it sounds like they're trying to educate young kids to thinking that police are friendly and police are um, welcoming and nice and it, it troubles me that they're all targeting these youth, these children. They keep mentioning youth, but they're actually children, like nine-year-olds. And for me, uh, I think of my sister who still doesn't grasp the understanding of what it means to be racist, what it means to protest, right? Like she's asking me questions about, you know, why are all these white people killing black people? And and trying to understand what's going on. And then you're trying to implement this program where it's supposed to teach them what, like it's problematic all around. And it's obviously coming from someone or people who have not one taken ethnic studies or knows what they, what it is. And two um, is trying to appease, you know, the majority culture. Right. Um, so uh, what I've heard is that it's being revised and people's concerns about the program are going to be taken into consideration, which is a very, you know, generic response. Um, the first session is African-American history and they sang Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. I'm like, are you serious? This is like white person's version of, you know, what African-American history is in the first place. And I'm like, there is more than just MLK and Rose Parks, which is I'm like any nothing different than what our social science classes are showing. There's no critical thinking in the inclusion, first of all. I'm like, and then the second one is Mexican and American history. Again, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta are not the only ones that have Mexican who have contributed to Mexican American history. Um, and then the second, the third session is women's history, women's right to vote. Who's right to vote? You know, I, I don't think they're even going to be critical about gender and also gender and race and ethnicity of like the realities of women, white women got the right to vote at a specific time earlier than everybody else. So what about that? You know, and Latin American history, this is laughable. This is laughable, insulting, infuriating, all in one. All Latin American history is just Aztec and Mayan empires, which again, we've discussed this offline, like who are Aztecs in the first place? You know, if you, if you don't know, look it up. Not everyone in Latin American is Aztec. Not everyone is Mexican. Perpetuating these stereotypes 
it's okay. Like, and, and where's the cop? And then the last session is pilot conclusion in Santa Rosa violence prevention partnership. I'm like, how do you prevent violence in these groups if you're not providing housing, affordable housing, you know, childcare, if you're not providing better teachers? Like this Santa Rosa City School could invest it in better quality teachers with no cops involved in there. I'm like, where are all the, you know, the counselors? Where are all the social workers? Um, ethnic studies teachers who actually understand and are credible and like have the experience of being able to talk about these things in the first place with no cops. Um, where's the session about talking about um, police and the history of police? That would be... If you're going to include with the cop, talk about, you know, the harm that they have created in this, in this specific community, the history of it, the local history, and then you can talk about nationally if you want to. Um, well... You know, I just found this interesting article that the person charged with this uh, started on July 21st in a role that focuses on strengthening community relationships, which includes the implementation of the city's community empowerment plan, an effort that uh, the city launched in response to protests against George Floyd's killing. And what else? Um, this person has lived in Sonoma County for over, for about 20 years and was, and will be making $116,000, $117,000 to implement this work. Themselves, like that's their salary, that's the budget for the program. No, starting sa salary. persona. <laughs> the person supposedly understands. Yeah, and the person um, supposedly understands the important time our community is in and is ready to engage, participate, and facilitate the difficult conversations that are long overdue. Um, they were, whoever wrote about this individual said that they were excited to have this individual as part of the team to lead honest and open engagement at such a critical time. So there you go. That's why we get that, that type of programming. What kind of justice is that in the first place? I'm like, you could have given, so, so whenever cities are telling you that there's not enough money, by the way, I don't know enough of this programmer, but I could just imagine what kind of, you know, excuses people are. If a state anywhere is telling you that there's no money, well, apparently there is money for these programs. So if they want to, you know, make the most money out of the stuff that I'm like, fire the people who you have currently and hire new ones and allow them to do the programming that they need to do. Because clearly all these white Latinas are, you know, using all this money to continue to perpetuate all these stereotypes, all this racism, all this harm in our communities without being unchecked. And if they ever get any criticism, Again, it's defensiveness, it's reacting like white women, it's having all these white tears saying my community doesn't support me or whatever. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, is the community holding you accountable because we care enough about the repercussions that it has on minors from third grade to, what is it, eighth grade? I think so, yeah. Third to sixth grade, the sellouts, really. But yeah, so that's going on in Santa Rosa. I'm sure there's there's a laundry list of every single person's like county that you can like 
look mm-hmm. up and find specific, specifically white people of color in there involved and creating all these things. Don't be afraid in your meeting to call it out and do something, you know? And that's usually why people, why these organizations uh, hire such people because they know that they're not going to rock the boat. They know that they're going to bend over backwards for them. They're going to be quiet. They're not going to... Yeah, and talking about positions, you know that there's the new CSU chancellor? Yeah. And it's um, Fresno's past, you know, uh, president. president. And then at Fresno, there was a new um, provost, just recent provost who didn't have enough, you know, experience in the first place to be provost is now the president interim. And what do they all have in common? The same, well, they're white Latino, like white cis Latinos. I mean, that's... Uh-huh is a common factor but it's also um they are you know they they have hired consultants from the same place to help them know how to play the cards and all that stuff to get those positions in the first place so it's not the fact that we are not smart enough or have enough experience is that we don't hire or have money and this is a joke by the way um but this is like the thing is that it, it is reduced to you not having enough money to play to pay into this exclusive club of people to be able to get this position. So whenever you hear again graduate students or professionals saying that they don't have the enough qualifications for a specific position that's bogus, I'm pretty sure if you didn't even have it, I think you would do way better. And I'm talking about specifically Black, Indigenous, people of color who are not sellouts who that you know have the personal experience and have the politic to move us forward and do something different you don't need that much experience we're just being gaslighted and told that we need to wait our time and do all these things all this free service for the organization the corporation the institution whatever it is so they can stall us so all these white latinos or white cis men can just take up the position so from here on out, I do not want to hear all these professional, you know, workshops, organizations, stuff like that, tell you that, that you're not qualified enough. They should be a little bit more explicit and just say, you're not paying for this consulting thing and you're not a cis man exactly. or, a white woman. or a white woman. Yo, whenever, you know, white people are telling us to not do something because it's not the proper whatever or it's not okay, they're lying because really they're just getting in the way of our greatness. And I think even more so of us, like we really need to like start being a little bit more bolder and just say, you know what? Okay, well then, you, you know, you can't afford my prices. You can't afford my, you know, my talent. I will take it somewhere else. I'm not going to work for someone who doesn't believe in my power of getting people together. Um, And I don't think we should downplay ourselves um, for anyone. And that's what I mean about 2020 being about what brings me joy. And, um, and, and and a point that I do want to make is that just because we're not doing things their way, the way that they would do it, doesn't mean that it's wrong. My approach might be different, but I get results. I, we get to the same place. It's just different and, that, and it doesn't mean that. It, it's this insecurity that they have and like they think, and, and there's a generational uh, difference too. And But even uh, they're not even generational. Remember that other white supervisor I used to have too? That they were just micromanaging you and, and they were super offended by like anything that you wouldn't do that they would do it in their way 
and that again they knew your power and they knew they know your power and they know your your qualification i can get stuff done (laughs) that the fact that you get stuff done at the at the even faster rate than they do and that you're able to make effective changes that you need to get done i that's my worst work peeve is to feel micromanaged you know lack of trust in my work and in um, it's so insulting it's so insulting like you know what again just harness i think 2020 has let me know like my boundary work like you have to have it stronger because you've been way too nice to the wrong people you know to the people that are you know very disrespectful for you in the first place like and we have to start thinking about burning bridges in the sense that they burned it to us like these are lessons in terms of supervisors and employees that I'm like, it's just, you know, 2020 is giving us this whole, and it's not just 2020 the year, but it's like this phase of our lives is like reminding us, like, are you, are you serious about your commitment to what you're saying that you are? And over and over and over in us, like we are, we are self-sabotaging our own greatness because we want to be nice. We want to do this and that, whatever the reason, but I'm like, it's just, you got to be strong with your beliefs and you got to stick yeah. to them and, and just be like, who's, who's justice, who's greatness are you investing in, you know? And, and it's definitely not these people times. Um, have I been in a meeting? I mean, I haven't been in this position for a long, but I'm like, these people definitely do like everything that you're not supposed to do in order to be effective, which is interesting because they pay tons and tons of money in these consultants and also tons and tons of money in training for them to tell you the most basic shit ever. Like, I'm like, y'all need to start paying me 10,000 K for the advice that I give because it's pretty, (laughs) you know, and it gets to the root cause and create solutions and everything. But I mean, I'm at this point where I'm like, if y'all are not listening to me, I'm going to just, you know, say in my podcast, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to say it in my podcast because clearly like, you know, our listeners are the ones that, you know, care. Um, and also I think it's, it just shows to the point that I'm like, y'all pay all this money and which they always say that they don't have money for interesting. Um, but ponen tanto like emphasis on the numbers like there's this meeting um, that they keep having, like they just waste our time, right? Like always, they, they waste our time, we're in meetings and they show all this data, which every time I hear the data and see it, I'm like, it irks me to the core because their data is shit because they're not even knowing how to collect it in the first place. They don't ask the right questions. Um, they don't know how to look at demographics the right way. And they're always showing the demographics everywhere. They're like, look at our, look at our people of color. You know, they're doing so bad. And I'm like, no, no, wrong question, wrong thing. You're using all these demographics for diversity crap, but I'm like, you really are not. You're just there to use them to keep further perpetuating harm to them and then blame them for things. And I'm like, they just... They spend a whole meeting, a committee meeting, just showing the data. So then people don't provide feedback. And then the people who are providing feedback, if they even have, even if they're in that stage where they are collecting feedback, they don't ask everyone and they don't even do anything. So I'm like, they're just doing, you know, uh, assessment 101 issues, which is like, stop collecting data if for the sake of collecting data. Like that's a free piece of advice that will solve all your problems. 
the first one, you know, there's other things going on after that, but I'm like, I'm tired of people just wasting my talents and energy. And I'm like, and it is unfortunate because then you have to pay all these consultants outside that will actually give you really effective, you know, uh, solutions or things that you need to do. Like that's capitalism, right? Like you're, the institution that's supposed to provide the work is so, so tan inutiles to the point that then you have to like go and pay a consultant to do the work that you need to do. And again, I've gotten white students that are like, oh, like they, they're, they're even frustrated about the bureaucracy and they just pay someone else to do this or they sue them and they get money. So I'm like, what are we doing? Which, I mean, brings me to the point that I'm like, we are, I, like, what I'm excited about now, the fact that, you know, TikTok is still, a, you know, in existence or that it survived the whole, you know, scare, or the, como se dice, like the, the intimidation part of like being taken out or whatever, is that yeah. it's an opportunity for us to like, especially for me to just showcase like all this information that students don't get because, I mean, I... I'm like thinking about dropping, you know, some videos on like common majors um, for undergrads and some of the myths that I've gotten or some common questions that I see students come in for. Um, late drop withdrawal information, just because I think that's really, really pertinent right now for students um, because deadlines are coming up and students are failing courses that they shouldn't have. Um, and a conversation about rate my professor, because I think more people need to know about this and also why orientation leaders are so against rate my professor, which it's a whole other thing, but hopefully that will help more students understand this. And again, this is like out of not like we've gotten more information better from sources outside of higher ed than the actual higher ed people. Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, I think that's that was a long, long check-in, but it was needed because I think we had a lot of thoughts like since our last episode. Um, and it's all it's all relevant and it's all very timely and we hope that our conversation helps you know stir some thoughts and conversations with your own family members and um you know situations that come up right and self-care is important so take those days off yeah self-care and community care i'm like you have to just i think if anything i i'm like really challenging our listeners to really evaluate the people that you have in your life where are you spending the most energy? Because again, where energy goes, energy flows. So I'm like, you have to really think about who you need to cut, who you need to block. Um, I deactivated my Facebook for a while just because I'm like, I wasn't ready to, you know, cause there's also like the other part where I, when like, what, how do you block family when like, then you get confronted, you know, about it. So I was like, you know what, let me deactivate my Facebook while I like come up with my game plan, you know, like, what am I going to do? How am I supposed to address? So like, take the time to like, either deactivate your social media or do something that you need to do just so you develop your game plan of like getting more clear on what boundaries you need to draw, who you need to talk to, who, like, what do you need to do? to you know to be better and like your thoughts and your in your actions aligning because i feel like even our own social justice circles like we say we don't like certain things yet we're still catering to abusers we're still you know friends with the people that we shouldn't be friends with um because they're harming us it, you know at the end of the day like if they're harming you like even more so right but if it's harming your community and stuff like what are some words or things that we need to change um and who we need to like prioritize in our mental health and like seeing a mental health practitioner and 
we have in our Patreon, you know, a list of mental health resources that are, you know, catered to um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, different able, uh, different abilities um, and different identities as well. Like that's important. So I think all of the stuff that you need to care about your health, like holistic health, um, we need to start looking at them now, not when we're in a hole, because I think that's even harder. Um, but, you know, rent is still due. There's no second, third, second stimulus to the people. We are still, you know, having a lot of all the, the same issues. I mean, it, things haven't turned, it, things haven't, you know, changed overnight. And 70 million people out there voted for Trump. So, you know, all those things are still happening. So I think it's really important for us to take care of ourselves and ask, you know, what you need and donate to people, you know, start budgeting. Having financial wellness is also helpful and start budgeting, you know, being able to direct money to people um, and start cutting people off from your follower list, especially influencers that did not speak about politics and benefit from them. It is really exciting to be here today with a special guest um, who I'm happy to introduce. Uh, her name is Jeanette Diaz, R-D-H-R-D-H-A-P-M-S, and her pronouns are she and her, and she's a registered dental hygienist. Uh, Jeanette Diaz has been practicing dental hygienist in um, Southern California for over 13 years. She's also She also is an independent dental hygiene practice owner where she provides in-home dental hygiene services to patients who have special needs or have a difficult time getting to the traditional dental office. Uh, Jeanette is a first-generation college graduate and holds a master's in dental hygiene with an emphasis in public health from the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Science in Boston. She's currently enrolled at MCPHS to complete a master's in public health. She has been very involved in advocacy and leadership within the dental hygiene associations and has served as past vice president for the California Dental Hygienists Association and has also been a past president for the Long Beach Dental Hygienists Society. Currently, she is the public relations council chair for the California Dental Hygienists Association. Um, and she is also the recipient of the 2020 Mars Relief Foundation grant in which she developed an oral health education program for adolescent mothers and hopes to implement the oral health assessment later this year. So welcome, Jeanette. Welcome to, to um, the podcast. I know we both met um, all in social media. You just sent us a message saying, hey, I have this topic that I know that uh, since I've been listening to your episodes that we haven't covered. So tell us about, you know, what you wanted to come and talk to us about. Hi, ladies. Thank you for having me. I listen to you uh, on my drives to and from work. And so it's nice to uh, see you all in person, um, virtually. Uh, so I wanted to talk about dental hygiene um, as an avenue for any of your listeners that might be uh, considering maybe a field in dentistry. So I am a dental hygienist. I've been a hygienist for 13 years. And when I first heard about dental hygiene, I had no idea what it was. I, I always thought there was a dentist and then there's the people that hand the, the like instruments or tools, you know, to the doctor, the dentist. And so um, I was in high school and I was taking a dental assisting course in the evenings. And that's where I learned about dental hygiene. So a hygienist is the person who 
basically, you know, they say that it cleans your teeth, but it's a lot more than that. We, we scrape the teeth, right? Um, it's separate from the dental assistant who helps the, the dentist. And we're in charge of trying to keep your mouth um, healthy, free of gum disease, free of dental cavities. So there's a lot that goes into it. And I had no clue. I always thought like, okay, just go have like nice straight teeth, make them white. Like had no clue that dental affected your body. And so that was very um, eye-opening. And that's why I decided to pursue it. And um, I, I just wanted to bring awareness to it if there's anyone out there that might be interested. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you reached out to us because I think that has been uh, one of our missions uh, with Ariana and I trying to bring in different people from different backgrounds and fields just because I think from the conversations Ariana and I have had offline has been, you know, what are some ways that, you know, students could get exposed to just the variety of different graduate school programs and even like professional degrees that are out there because not every single degree is a right fit for the people who, you know, want to do things and don't get exposed enough to what professional degrees could do for for students or for future students. Um, I just recently did a graduate school week series and I partnered up with the College of Graduate Studies um, at my college that I work at. Um, For anyone who doesn't know, I work at San Jose State. And I think it's been really important to um, really discuss like the disparities and the lack of information and access that students have. And when there are conversations about graduate school, I think it has been centered around, you know, getting more students and especially students of color to um, PhD programs, which is something that is important and that we do need. Um, But I think it's also important to expose students and not be so, um, because that could cause harm in terms of, you know, we've seen a ton of people trying to say like, I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel happy. I don't feel like this is the right fit. And I think the prestige around PhD programs and even master's programs is, you know, something that I think on a personal level shouldn't be the burden. And I think the more I've been exposed to professional degrees and even working at a, at a CSU campus has been important because a lot of our students have different journeys. And so tell us about how you first started um, higher ed and, and the conversations we just had about, you know, how difficult it is for especially community college students, knowing that a lot of our students of color are coming from the community colleges, going to four years and then beyond that. So tell us where the decision-making happened and how you started higher ed and the kind of experiences and advice that people gave you throughout your, your, your time. Okay. So for me, dental hygiene, um, you know, they offer the program at a community college. They also offer it at universities. And so I knew, I always knew that I wanted to go to the university, you know, I'd be the first one in my family. Um, I also was a teen mom. So that was something that affected my decision-making because I needed a career fast. I needed something that was going to pay my bills. And so I decided to go to the community college route. So I, I did two years of prerequisites to then be able to apply to dental hygiene because you had to have all these um, sciences. So after dental hygiene school, I still felt like, well, you know, I'm not done. I still want, you know, a bachelor's degree. In my field, you don't have to have a bachelor's. You could be done with your, your two-year associates of science or associates of arts in dental hygiene, get out, work, make good money, and stay there. But for me, looking ahead in the future, I thought, well, 
dental hygiene depends on my body because you do have to, um, you're bending in weird positions. I've had issues with my shoulder, my neck. And so I was thinking ahead, okay, well, maybe I can teach, maybe I can go into academia, but I need that higher ed, right? So when I got out of dental hygiene school, I had three two-year degrees and I still didn't have a bachelor's. So I looked into bachelor programs. There weren't too many completion programs at the time. Um, so I was limited. There was this school, it's a, like an international type of school. It's here in Arizona, but it offers degrees to other um, hygienists. And so I did that, but I still knew, well, I still want to get my master's. And so um, again, I didn't have a bachelor's that was accredited because this, this program wasn't accredited that I, that I took. And so there was one program that's a private school and they take you all the way from your associates to um, a master's degree. And so knowing that that was my end goal, I decided to do that. But, you know, I had no guidance. Um, I had no idea what to do. I didn't even know what the heck grad school meant. Um, it's funny because we all know what that means now, but I had no idea. I'd hear people have conversations like, oh, you know, I just finished grad school. I had no idea what that even was. Um, and in dental hygiene school, they didn't really talk about grad school. I mean, I knew my professors had bachelor's and master's degrees, but they never talked about it as, as it even being a choice, you know? So, um, yeah, that's how I, I guess, chose my program is I was limited. And so that was it. It's interesting that you have done work in Long, Long Beach and in Massachusetts, right? How did that come to be? So the program is, it was an online, um, master's that's why, but I did have to go to Massachusetts. So that was, um, that was, I thought it was kind of cool where I'm like, I'll make some networking connections out there. You never know where the world will take us. Right. But I did have to consider that, you know, I have to pay for a flight. I've got to take time off work. Um, but it was, it was neat. I made some connections out there. Um, I'd spend like a, a long weekend, you know, for orientation. And then during the summer I'd go. Um, so that's how I found the program because it was online and I could, I could not, you know, I, Excuse me, I could work and go to school and and so that worked for me. When you mentioned, you know, like the need of, you know, the choices that were already limiting to you after high school and having to consider like what is the pathway. And when you mentioned like I didn't even know what grad school was, or even that professors had all these degrees. And I think we've been exposed to people um, who have, you know, been educators in our lives that this happens, but I think less so happens when those same people end up picking us and saying you're i think worthy of you know knowing this information or like even asking us like so what do you think have you thought about grad school even like that simple question can be so transformative just because it gives you a sense that it, it could be you because this is all happening externally and i don't know if you've had this thought but it's like um, when I was in high school, I had two different um, student, like educators um, in Upper Bound that were working towards getting a PhD, but it never had occurred to me that that could be someone like myself, like I could be in grad school or even understand what it is. And just recently, I saw this tweet that said like, um, you know, everyone around me in the lab or, you know, like in grad school were talking about like, I just did it because my parents had been doing grad school and they had dissertations lying around in their house, but never think about like, well, I just 
literally learned about grad school like less than 10 years ago um, and even what that meant. And now that we're on the other side where we're close to either finishing or half finished, um, there's still so much to learn because there's so many more navigational tools right after. Because it's, it's one, uh, one thing about experiencing the educational track your, from your own path and a whole other thing, understanding like what all the options could have been. And especially since you went to an, an accredited, unaccredited bachelor's um, program, not even knowing that, right? Like being able to have, you know, decided beforehand even what to look for and to make sure that your degree is even accredited. And the fact that you had to navigate and think about, well, because of my limitations or, you know, my lack of access to information, you had to do a virtual program. Yet right now you're heavily involved in the field. So how, like, tell us about what was, you know, the moment that made you connect all these pieces together to be able to get to where you are now? Well, I think, you know, navigating this was hard and I, I've had time, um, you know, I finished my program, my master's, the thesis during this pandemic. So, and I was back, I was off for two months because in dentistry here in, um, I mean, all over the place, it, it did close down, but in California, it was, you know, it was way str more strict. And so I had some time, I think, to, to kind of reflect and, um, and think about all those things that I didn't know or, or that I know now, even coming across your podcast, I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I would have heard you guys a year ago. Um, that even that would have helped because you guys broke down the thesis in steps. It, it was great. Um, so I, I don't know. I think I just kept going. I just, I feel like I was just winging it all. Um, but now I have time to, to think about it and, and I'm, I just hope that other people feel comfortable asking questions and, and really looking for these resources that you guys have available. Um, they're out there. We just have to look and, and I just wish, I mean, I'm glad you guys exist, <laughs> but I didn't come across you guys soon enough. <laughs> and even, you know, for us, like still, this has been a really great experience being able to, you know, provide this information. And, and even you, you have all this like uh, connections and resources that we also don't know. And especially when, when students come. And I think the biggest, I think, gap of information that I had was now that I'm in this role where I'm an academic advisor and get across a bunch of different students. And in the College of Social Science, it ranges from uh, communications, economics, uh, political science, justice studies now. And so like most of these fields are so like so broad and also it ranges from different outcomes in graduate school. So some students decide to go to the um, public health uh, field um, and it can range into even some students deciding because we have psychology, they become, you know, potential medical doctors. And so that's a huge level of amount of students that ended up deciding what to do and even deciding for themselves. I don't think a four years for me, I think it'll might be much easier to go through a professional degree starting first at the community college. Um, so I think that there has been interesting in knowing that, you know, whatever decision making you make, I think it's still important to leverage some of these connections and information. Um, even if you're kind of a person who's shy or something like social media platforms like this have been helpful. So tell us about the decision making process you had in pursuing a career in dental hygienist, um, specifically like because you mentioned about how 
you later on became an independent dental hygienist um, in your practice. Like how someone who just is starting and thinking about, well, I've been to the dentist one or two times before, you know, like how do you end up, you know, pursuing a, a career there? So for, so starting off, like in California, we have the registered dental hygienist, and then we have something called a registered dental hygienist in alternative practice. So that's an extra licensure. You do have to have um, like extra training and then take another license exam. And what that allows you to do is to set up your own dental hygiene practice. So typically hygienists are employed by the dentist, right? And we can't, like, I can't go and just say, hey, I'm going to do dental hygiene all off on my own. Like, we literally have to work under the dentist. Um, but this extra license, the RDHAP, that was um, created so that in, like, rural areas where there aren't any dentists, technically then a dental hygienist with that extra tra training could set up an actual dental practice and people could come to you to provide dental hygiene services. Um, or you could uh, be like, if there are a lot of dentists in the area, I mean, I live in Southern, you know, Southern California, like there's dentists everywhere. So, but there are areas where they're um, underserved. So there are some spots where I could set up an office, but the route that I took is to do mobile. Like I have my mobile dental hygiene equipment and I take it into um, someone's house. And the people that I see are usually older, older people people that have like a, a physical disability who just like they struggle, they can't leave the house um, or even an emotional, some, something that just is difficult for them to uh, come to the dental office. It could literally, it could be a phobia. It could be anxiety. And so I come to them, they're in the comfort of their own home. Um, and so I knew about this extra licensure in dental hygiene school and I thought, oh, that's cool. I want to pursue. I, I've always been wanting to like keep pursuing, you know, the more education, you know, the better. And so that's how I decided to, to do that. But I got my license in 2014 and then I didn't do anything with it because of the roadblocks of, I don't know how to start my own business. Like I'm not good at that stuff. And so literally that held me back for quite a few years. And, um, Last year, I finally was like, what the heck, I'm going to do this. And so that's how that happened. Um, I don't know. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> that's wonderful. I mean, I think the hardest step oftentimes is taking that first step, right? Um, connecting with folks that already already have their own um, businesses, right? Like, um, who did you lean on for that type of support? Did you have, like faculty members, mentors, uh, colleagues, how did you end up figuring it out? Maybe that could be helpful for some of our listeners who might be considering this, this path. So um, through my work with the Dental Hygiene Association, it's all volunteer, but through my connections there, I have met RDHAPs who are um, all over the place. And that's kind of how I started to, I guess, ask the questions and also, there's a lady I work with at one of my offices who does it and she's like, it's super easy. You know, this is she basically I would see her every week. And so she kind of was my um, she kept me accountable. You know, she's like, OK, where are you? Did you set up the business license? I'm like, I don't even know how to do that. OK, this is what you need to do. You know, investigate, um, go research it. So she was really helpful. And then the lady uh, there's one lady that's up north, um, way up north she has her own dental uh, 
practice and she's been in it for, I mean, these ladies are old enough to be my mom, you know? And so they kind of like took me under their wing and I'd call them, text them. And they, they basically just were like rooting me on and, and um, really motivating me. Like you can do this. Um, so I, I leaned on them heavily, I would say. And then even my, I would say like my boyfriend, my family, they have always said, you know, just do it. Like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I think for me, I dealt with a lot of imposter syndrome um, that I would say creeped up in grad school. Like that's when I, um, I think that's when I became aware of it. And I feel like that's what's kind of held me back. Um, but, but really the, the people that are already in the field are, are good uh, resources to ask the questions. And, and you find that people are happy to help, you know, it's just, taking that leap and, and asking for help. <laughs> right, right. And I, I was going to say, I mean, when you were talking about um, the imposter syndrome, it oftentimes comes to the fact that you don't see a lot of other people like you who look like you in the field, right? It comes to the fact that you're like maybe one of the, f- the few. And um, could you talk to us or share with us more about what that was like for you. Um, Do you have any stats about how many Latin folks go into the dental hygiene field? And this comes as a question um, because I've seen way too many Latinas and it's usually Latinas ladies who are working the front desk, but never in the back. And I think that's even more, you know, complicated in terms of, you know, being able to feel not only comfortable, and as you mentioned, like a lot of your clients feeling comfortable going to to the dentist, and especially with people who have uh, needs of uh, different accommodations or have special needs. Um, So what has been your experience in terms of the amount of either Latinxes or Latinas in the field? So for dental hygiene, it's predominantly white females, like that's pretty much what you have seen traditionally. Um, I know for a fact, it's like 96% women in dental hygiene. Um, I did my whole thesis on the experiences of men in dental hygiene since they're the minority. Um, And that's a whole nother conversation. But so I know that it's predominantly women, females, I don't know the exact number of Latinas, but it's it's still low. Um, And they talk about they're we're underrepresented. So in California, I would say I've seen, you know, there's more Latinas here, but um, when I would go to meetings in other states, it was, I felt like, you know, I was probably one of the only ones, or maybe there were some, but you can't all, you know, you, we all look different, right? You can't go off of looks. Um, but in California, it's a huge problem because when a provider doesn't look like you, doesn't speak your language, there's the issues that come with, you know, trust, um, you know, accepting treat, even accepting treatment. So for me, I have found that it works, it's worked in my, to my advantage in my private practice offices, because people are comfortable. Um, If they want to speak Spanish, cool, we're going to speak Spanish, you know, so it's been great for me. But as a whole, when you look at the access to care issue that we have in dentistry, like we have high rates of dental caries here in California, we have all these programs, but still our kids have cavities, um, especially in the Latino communities. So uh, even going to the dentist, it, it was usually like a white man. Um, the numbers have changed. Like, no, there's more women going into dentistry, but Latinas still, it's, it, you don't, 
I've never seen a, there's one Latina dentist and she worked at one of the clinics that we worked at as a, as a student. Um, but yeah, you don't see these people. So sometimes you don't even think that you could go into these spaces. You know, it's like a lot of people don't know that they could become a hygienist or that they could become a dentist. Um, and so, and we need more Latinos in dentistry. So it, it is one of those things that I think I noticed when I left um, my little circle here, especially even in graduate school, um, you know, it's usually white ladies. Um, there was one guy in my cohort uh, and he happened to be from California and I think he was, um, I think he's Salvadorian. And so that was like my, he and I connected and um, we bug each other all the time because we kind of get the struggle together. But yeah, you're definitely a minority in, in dental hygiene as a Latina. Even looking back at my own experience going to the dentist or going to the orthodontist, right? It's, I, I'm looking back thinking, okay, they were mostly white ladies. I'm visualizing the, <laughs> the place, right? And there was that one Latina person that would put our braces or tighten them. And then the head person was an older white male. Um, and then the dentist's uh, offices that I've gone in Massachusetts, again, it could be from maybe, I think I felt a sense of relief when it was a person of color, like uh, someone from India or, you know, any, uh, um, I, I want to say Asian backgrounds. Even when I went to the dentist recently in Santa Rosa, it was an Asian man. And, and I was looking at his um, degrees. I just happened, you know, I'm paying and I look at his, at the wall and I see that he was an engineer, mechanical engineer. He got his BA in mechanical engineer from Berkeley. And then he went into, uh, uh, to become like a dental surgeon, I think. Um, and I, I just found it so interesting. I'm like, huh, like it's always, I'm always perplexed and interested in how people come to the careers that they are. And then my friend, uh, last year, um, undocumented, Latino from Napa and he just became a dentist. I was like so proud of him and another um, his friend um, is a Latina uh, woman and she's uh, she also went to UCSF and just became a dentist like they became dentists at the same time so I was like oh wow like you know few of us are in this field until you know you were discussing that and pointing it out and I was like well like for me it was just became so normal not to see many of us in it in this field but then to actually go through this process, it must have been like, you know, you're breaking through. <laughs> you're breaking through and, and skating by sometimes. And when it comes to the health fields, and it could be health generally and broadly, one of the good conversations to have, and especially with upcoming new professionals, is the idea of having your own private practice. Being able to not only have a whole different business model in terms of how you conduct your business, um, but also it, it, the, having the agency of having, you know, your own place where you don't maybe have to deal with as many, you know, work, toxic workplaces or um, being able to hire now. So tell us more about your private practice, like because of the model that you have, how has that informed you in terms of what you've done, even with your master's thesis and your, you know, school preparation? Like, how does that inform you in the way that you've now been able to act, like have people access your services? With the, having my own like private practice, I mean, I've, I worked at one office for 13 years. I, I, it was like my first job, right? And literally like 
yesterday, today I, I resigned and I was down to working in that office. I used to work full time and then I went down to like one day and I'd work Saturdays. And knowing that I have the flexibility to, to basically make my own schedule with my private practice, um, mobile private practice, um, it's one of those things that I think it empowers you where it's like, I don't, it's great to have a steady uh, income and sometimes you need that, you depend on that. But to know that you have the freedom to set your schedule um, and to go to the people that need you, I think that to me is, is more um, gratifying, you know, so it's still, it's scary. I mean, I still work with one, I work, was working in two offices, so I still work with the other office, but I want to have more uh, time available for those that need me that are in private, uh, I'm sorry, that are, you know, homebound. Um, or some of my patients, I've been with them, you know, a long time and they're starting to age and they're starting to have a tough time. So I want to be able to continue treatment for them. But also with this, um, with this mobile practice, I, I could do like schools, we could set up a school program or tie in the public health aspect. Um, so that's something that I just, I, I guess having this extra, um, more education, it, it really empowers you to basically know that like I have what it takes to, to get stuff done. I don't have to depend on, you know, a dentist to employ me or I have to depend on, you know, something else. So, um, and your thesis, um, tell us more about what that thesis research project was. Cause I think, I mean, you've mentioned that you've had challenges with the thesis, but e either way you finished it. So that's the important part. What were the biggest lessons that you've, that you've got from that experience? The thesis experience, I mean, it was, it was grueling and, you know, prior, again, I didn't know what the heck a thesis was. Like I enrolled into this program and they were like, oh yeah, there's a thesis. I didn't even know there's a difference between a thesis and a capstone. So I'm like, I guess I'm doing a thesis, right? So the, the hardest part was, of course, trying to come up with, you know, a topic. And, and for us, it could have been a topic. Um, I mean, for me, I really want to do something in like the Latino community. Um, but also you run into problems because you're in dental hygiene and you're wanting to conduct um, research in, in a public health setting. And so you're, you're still having to break more barriers, right? And so, and then we have, we could study issues in our own profession, right? So what I, I was thinking about, like, there, we know that there's some discrimination, we know that there's some gender um, related issues that happen in female dominated um, industries. And I, I do know a lot of men who are hygienists, um, a lot of them here in California. And so they've told me, well, sometimes they won't hire a guy because again, it's the typical like blonde, white girl hygienist, you know, and they don't want to have a man. Um, you know, I have a friend who's a black man, he had a little more issues in getting a job, right? So I thought, well, why don't I do the, my thesis on that? It's, it's kind of addressing some of the issues that as women we deal with, but with a twist, right? And, and I have friends who are like, why are you going to study what the men go through? Like, who cares? Um, but again, the like bigger picture was that I wanted to find out, like, are they experiencing anything different? Um, the literature for like men in nursing shows that, um, you know, they jump up the, the ladder way higher in leadership positions. Um, the men will make more money when men enter like a female dominated profession, the wages go up. So I started thinking about that in terms of dental hygiene, because 
traditionally it's we've worked it's like females working for men um, the men basically were the dentist and um, they controlled what we can and can't do in california we have our own dental hygiene board which is like the only state in the whole country that has it so there was like conflict of interest right so anyhow that's why i said i'm gonna study this and um but again is to kind of like start uncovering those issues the workplace issues that we have as dental hygiene professionals um so yeah that's the topic that i did but but even just doing the whole thesis process especially online um you're kind of limited to to i guess the support that you have and these thesis advisors have a ton of students um my program apparently no one before my cohort had actually finished on time and so they're like they have thesis from you know a semester or two semesters ago so the advisors are like just to the top um so that made it a little hard but um yeah it's challenge the thesis was challenging for me uh but we pulled it off <laughs> and even when you get all the support it's still challenging because you have to deal with everything else that comes in right like there's always one thing that's working and then everything else that just kind of falls apart and if it's the first time that you're learning and doing i think that's even more like that was super hard and, and even hard for me to even start. I think that was the hard part is knowing how overwhelming the project was and you don't know how to do it. Um, either something didn't go well, either through your relationship with that faculty thing in your study, if your thing wasn't approved in this stage, you know, like all those things are just adding to the pile of the kind of challenges that we have to deal with navigating these spaces. And I think you bring up a really good point in the field is, is the importance of really thinking about how gender and gendered professions end up experiencing both in school and post school um, and the importance of, you know, about that toxic masculinity and how would it look like for people who are of different genders. So could you share, Janet, uh, some of the findings from your thesis? Sure. So I did a mixed methods. Um, so basically I had to do, it was like a quantitative and the qualitative portion, right? Um, I'm still analyzing the quantitative, but the qualitative, I can tell you that there were like five themes. Um, the biggest one is gender stereotypes. Um, the male hygienist said that they experienced that all the time. Um, from patients, from employers. Um, so that was a huge one. They also um, experienced discrimination where patients would flat out say like, oh, I'm not, I don't want to get my teeth cleaned by you. Um, employers who were like, we're not looking for a guy hygienist. Um, they would send, because we could go through like a temp agency to get placement. If you, if you don't want to work in like just one office, you can go work for the day. So some of those would say, oh, you know, they're not looking for you. Like, the men were like flat out discriminated, right? Based on, on their, um, on their gender. And, um, then there was one that where they got special treatment, um, which they called reverse discrimination. And that was interesting because they, they got stuff done faster than their female counterparts, which they thought was cool. Um, and they, they brought a different vibe. That was another one of the themes. They brought a different vibe to the office. Um, Gosh, I feel like there was there was one other. I can't think of it at the time. Oh, they don't want to be called guy hygienist. Like they want to be called just hygienist. You know, they don't like that. Um, 
but I, I found that in the qualitative, I did focus groups, there were, there was more diversity amongst the men than what, if I would have had a group of women, I think there were um, men from like, you know, different places. Um, so those were some, those were the findings from my qualitative study, but the quantitative, I'm still, um, I'm still in the works. My statistician has, has been like up to, you know, he's got so much work. So you know, I graduated, I'm done, but I'm still waiting. And, and the qualitative has been submitted um, to a journal. So I, I'm like doing reviews and hopefully it gets published. Um, but the, yeah, those were some of the findings just with that. So let's incorporate the, the family component. How has it been to be a working parent and balance school and all of that, the, the responsibilities that you must have? It's, it's hard. So I'll tell you, my son is in his third year of college and he goes to school in upstate New York. Um, and so in some ways that's been easy, right? Cause I don't come home and I mean, he's 19, but I don't have to come home and cook all the time. Like I used to when he was younger. So in that sense, it's great, but I do have my partner and, um, I feel like he, he's super supportive. Um, but he gets ignored a lot, you know, because we're stuck on our computers all the time. Um, it's been hard or, or having to miss family, you know, functions. I mean, I come from a big Mexican family and there's always something going on. And so that, that it's really hard. I feel like um, there's a lot of sacrifices if you pursue graduate school and you definitely have to find a balance. And I don't think I was as great about um, finding the balance in the beginning. I actually had enrolled into my program when my son was still in high school and I dropped it like after the second semester. Yeah. I was like, I can't do this. And then when he was in his senior year, then I picked it back up um, because I thought that, you know, I'd have more time, but um, I work full time and I, you know, was going to school full time. So it's just, um, yeah, you have good days. You have bad days. You know, sleep is so important. I know you guys have, talked about like the routines and um you know self-care like you you really have to do that because you run out of gas if you don't you're um yeah i think in everything that we do self-care is very important and that brings me to the next question about what are some myths around dental hygiene that you could share with our audience so some of the myths I would say is like, oh, you're going to make a ton of money. And like <laughs> a lot of hygienists in the early years when I got into it, they're like, oh, I chose this because they pay really good. Like you make a lot of money, which I mean, for having just a two year degree and not wanting to pursue anything else. Yeah, you do come out and you make, you know, here in California, you can make like 40 to 55, $65 an hour, depending where you're at. Right. Um, so for for not a whole lot of education, that's pretty good, right? But you find that it's not that easy. Um, and, and people will say, well, do you really need to go to school like you're just cleaning teeth, you know? And there's so much more than cleaning teeth. I would say um, the major classes that, that you have to know about, I mean, you have to know about all of them, but like medical history, all the medical background is so important. Um, I see patients who have all these underlying health conditions and there's an oral systemic link, right? So if there's issues with like heart disease, um, diabetes, any inflammatory diseases, you're going to see some things going on in the mouth. If you don't take care of the mouth, you know, the diabetes numbers are going to not be under control. So 
I think um, that's one of the myths that it's just about like scraping the tartar off or the calculus. That's the same thing. Um, it's way more than that. You have to know how to manage medical emergencies because, you know, people will pass out. I mean, it has, it, it's, it's been close for me, but you know, p things happen and there's been hygienists who've had to do actually use their CPR. Um, so it's not that easy. And then um, let's see what another myth. I feel like those are the two that kind of come up. Yeah. And people don't realize that for any field, you know, tiene su truco, tiene su, you know, her style. And I think because you make it look so easy and maybe that those, most of those patients that do end up, you know, it's usually a regular clean where there's not that many complications, but um, there is huge complications and, and long-term implications if you don't address these things, right? Like if, um, and I've seen this more with like just my family members uh, who have not gone to, you know, the dentist and they have like, uh, inflamed gums or uh, one of the tooth falls out or they didn't take care of something before they delayed it now there's complications in terms of you know a tooth broken or and it's great that if you don't have cavities I mean the, I think those are the big things that people think is that they tell they get told you need to floss more and uh, you need to take care of that cavity uh, what else is there so I'm so glad you brought that up because in our, in my own family, they're like, I'm just going to go to Tijuana. You know, I have like, I'm dentista. Yeah. I'm like, um, okay. Unless you really know the dentista, like you have to really know where you're going. Right. And they always say, I would say, this is another myth that dentistry is super expensive. Right. And yes, it, it does cost money. Right. It's not cheap, but if you let something small go, then it costs you more money. Right. So you could start off with something that's a little tiny cavity that they literally can put a filling you stop it, it's done. You let that little cavity grow, then it starts to get into the nerve. That's a root canal. That's another treatment, uh, more time, pain, you know. You let that go, then you need a crown. They have to put a cap over that, you know. So as you ignore or neglect your mouth, it, costs, it does cost more money. Um, another thing I, I tell people is, you know, if you don't have insurance, you could still come to the dentist. Um, it, it costs like, I don't know, hundred, maybe a hundred dollars for a cleaning, um, cash, you know? So I, and we spend that, you know, on a, on a weekend, sometimes just comiendo, whatever, you know, like you, or Starbucks, right. We always compare everything to the Starbucks thing. Um, so I tell people it's, it's important if you do the, the prevention, it pays off, you know, down the road. Um, but the other thing, so you come in and it's like, you don't want to have cavities. You don't want to have gum disease or gingivitis. Gingivitis is a step before gum disease. Um, but I also do oral cancer screens. I look, I have to look to make sure that there isn't something weird going on. And with oral cancer, it's not just smokers. It's not just um, alcohol. There's also an HPV link. So there's, there's other things that you come to us for. Um, us in grads, you know, when you're in grad school, you clench your teeth sometimes because you're stressed and um, that can cause fractures and you can break a tooth. So um, yeah, you come to the dentist, not just for, uh, you know, polish my teeth and I'm out. Like there, there's so much more, but in, I would say my own family, I don't know. I don't want to say it's like la cultura, you know, but you don't go until something hurts and by then it's too late. Right. So yes, you need to get everyone out, get your checkups. And sometimes we don't find anything and you're good. And other times if we do, if it's in the early stages, it's, it's going to be easier and it's way cheaper. Definitely, especially um, I want to share that even with myself, 
when I was younger, I didn't take care of my teeth and I had so many fillings and I just thought it was normal. Like my mom would take me to the dentist all the time and cavity, you need to come back and get it filled. And now as an adult, I, you know, floss and brush my teeth and every six months I just go for a clean and, you know, that's what I'm due for. And most recently I went for one. I'm like, I just need a cleaning. And sure enough, they took the x-rays, they looked at my teeth and he's like, yeah, you're right. You just need to clean. I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Cause I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to go through that torture. Right. It's unpleasant. So I don't know what, what changed, what shifted, but then I, I made the link between you take care of your teeth and it doesn't have to be worse than that. You don't, you don't have to endure as much pain if, as if you're taking care of a root canal or putting on a crown. And also, I, I want to say, like, health insurance, right, makes a big, big difference. When I was working at uh, Sonoma State, having such a good health insurance made things easier. I took, a, I took care of a lot of things when I would, had uh, dental health insurance that I, you know, they covered 80% of the cost. And so I, what I paid was nothing in comparison. And so I was able to, you know, kind of uh, reset my teeth from there. And so to ask just for a selfish, just selfishly me asking, um, what can someone like when they're in the office, what are some tips that you have of people to ask or what should you look for in a good dental hygienist? Patricia, thank you for asking that question because it, it is one of those where I'm always like preaching to my friends and my family because I know they're not all going to come to me, right? They're not all nearby, but what I tell my patients, especially if they're moving or um, if I'm telling my friends, you want to find um, someone that maybe, you know, someone that's been there, right? Because you, you can look at Yelp reviews. Apparently those people look at that stuff now and it might give you an idea, but it's not always. Um, so of course you want to make sure that they're legit licensed and you can look them up. Um, there's, you know, the dental board, there's a way to look up the license to verify. Um, and you want to, of course, make sure that they're clean, that, that things look clean in the office. I mean, that's kind of like worth a, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Um, you want to ask, even if you call the office and maybe you don't know them, ask what their protocols are, um, especially right now after, you know, or we're still during COVID, but there are a lot of things that we've kind of um, changed. You know, we've always been crazy about infection control, but right now, we're doing a little more. So you want to maybe ask like, what are they doing? We should be changing, you know, everything after each patient. Um, you, you want to make sure that uh, like the, the hand pieces that they're using, that they're sterilizing them properly. You know, everything should be like disposable. Not everything. The instruments get autoclaved, which means that they go through a processor. Right. Um, but also um, ask, I would say education, the education that the office gives you is super important because if you come in and, and they just like do a quick little, you know, scrape here, scrape there, polish and you're out, like it shouldn't, you shouldn't have your teeth clean in like less than 30 minutes. You know, you I mean, the doctors that I've worked with, I've always had, you know, a full hour, 45 to an hour should be the amount of time it takes to get your teeth cleaning done. Um, and another huge thing that I tell people to look out for is that they call out the gum exam. So I don't know if you guys are familiar, but you go to the office and they start calling out numbers like three, two, three. So that's a good sign. That means that they care about your periodontal health, which is your gums, you know, um, and that they talk to you about it and that your hygienist or the dentist 
shows you how to floss. I'm like crazy about that because I never, our, our parents don't show us how to floss. Our school never teaches, like who's supposed to teach us this? Your dental professionals are. And so um, that's another thing to, to kind of gauge the office. I think uh, the amount of education that they give you goes a long way. Um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, because I think it's been, you know, like whenever you go to these places, it's like that's the intimidation. They don't either walk you through the process or ask you some things or even provide you an opportunity to ask questions. I think those are big red flags that you should be aware of. But I think it's even harder going into a place like traditionally public health isn't very accessible. There's a lot of, you know, scamming happening. And so I think you bring up a really good point of like, what are some things to look for? And also trying to see from personal experience, I went through, you know, different, um, even asked the office to switch me to different people, especially if I felt that that person was judgmental. And even worse, because I've had a ton of white hygienists asking all these like very like, I had this hygienist ask me, like, do, because I, I explain what I do. I'm a higher ed professional. I work with students, especially students who traditionally, you know, haven't been in higher ed. And she just said, like, um, oh, I, I did, I paid my own, like, dental school, like, all by myself. I felt like I was my first, I was first gen. Um, and do students of color really, you know, experience something different? And so I think those are really important parts, right, the disconnect between a professional and not going to them, just like how you would with a therapist. You know, if you generally sense that the office isn't welcoming, welcoming to yourself and to the people around you, I think it's important, even if the office may be one of the few, I don't know everybody nationally how many dentists they have access to, but if sometimes even, you know, your health insurance is the only one that covers it or whatever the case is, always ask to switch, you know, hygienist or someone who speaks Spanish, someone who speaks your language, someone who you feel comfortable um, just because you don't have to stick with them and stick with that through that torture, right? Yeah, you bring up another good point, Patricia, because um, sometimes we just, like, we don't know, right? We, there's this, like, authoritative figure when you're going into a space where it's like, well, they're a health professional. They've got, you know, they're the experts or the professionals. And sometimes we don't know that, like, we have the power to ask questions um, and they should want, like, as a hygienist, I always ask my patients, do you have any questions? Like, does this make sense? Like they should, we should be allowing our, you know, patients to ask those questions. And it's, I mean, if you look at it from a business, you know, you're the client, you're the client. Um, so yeah, you should ask questions and you don't have to stick to the same person if you don't like them. And the other thing is if you have dental insurance and you find that like something didn't go right, you know, call your insurance and, and, let them know what your experience was because these insurance companies, they, um, they partner with these dentists. Right. And some, I, I get people that come to me all the time. Like I went to this place and this happened and, you know, and I said, well, did you call the insurance? Did you report it? You know, sometimes there are things that happen that need to be reported, you know, and people are afraid. Um, and so I, I try to, I mean, I don't want to say go rat everyone out, but if something happens to you, you need to speak up. And I, I think that we have to remind people to do that. You know? Absolutely. And I think uh, it's, it's our health in the end, and we're paying uh, to get this done and done correctly. It's important to know that 
we are in charge of our, you know, health. And also, as we also have a, a right to ask the questions or to assess the place and to your point to also report anything that might be done wrong. And you can ask them, you know, like the, the same thing as you would in the therapist, like how many blank people do you have as clients? Um, you know, like what has been your history? What are some common, like I, you know, now that I'm trying to look for, since I switched into this new job, like to ask and find a, a new dentist, it's like, you have to look at like their history. Are you familiar with the common, you know, health concerns for blank community, you know, or if how they would respond to someone, well, I haven't seen a dentist in blank years, what would be, you know, the process and either, you know, having you as my dentist, as my primary dentist provider, or what are some things that I should look for? Um, and it, depending on the response that you have, maybe that would be the right person to go with just because if they are really friendly to orient you through the basics, I think when it gets more complicated, I think it would help you um, for them to feel, make you feel comfortable. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, in, in any of the health professions too, what the things that I have found, um, at least like in my family, right, is, is that um, they don't feel like they're heard, um, or they're dismissed, you know, those are things that you don't have to put up with you, you know, there's so many other options. Um, now, the other thing too, that we didn't talk about is like this, like state funded programs, you know, some, there are people that have like Dentical is what it would be. Um, and they don't utilize their services. And so that's another, um, that's a whole nother conversation. But um, again, the why, why don't they utilize their services, it could be because they don't feel comfortable, you know, finding a provider that speaks their language, um, or makes them feel welcomed. And so that's, again, like, a fight within our own profession that we're having is, is to be able to do that. Or I've heard, you know, well, Dentical only pays this much. And so they're going to try to do more things to like get more money out of me. And so there, there are fears and there's mistrust. And so that's something that I would say is, is a fight every day. Um, but for me, I, I feel fortunate because I feel like, you know, with time, it could, even if you've had a bad experience, You'll, you'll find your fit and you'll find your, your dental home, you know? Um, so it just takes time, but, you, but yeah, people need to get out. <laughs> You've got to go prevention, prevention, prevention. Wonderful. I love that uh, last comment that you made. And I think that's a great way to close off our um, episode um, with you. And we really appreciate you taking the time to share your experience with us, with our listeners and sharing all that great advice, especially what's uh, the myths around dental hygiene, right? And, and the important process that it takes for whoever wants to pursue this career, right? To consider as they're uh, starting their, their profession or starting graduate school and within this field that we need more Latino, Latina, Latinx representation. Is there anything else you would like to add just before we, we end? I'd like to just say, um, you know, thank you guys for, for having this space. Um, it's, it's been very helpful for me, even if, even though I finished, you know, grad school, I'm still working on other things, but I think that um, if, if there's anyone out there listening that is interested in the dental profession, um, you know, they can feel free to reach out to me um, and to, to really uh, give it give it a thought because a lot of times we don't think that we can do it. And if you work hard, you can do anything. It's it's not rocket science. <laughs>
So thank you both for having me. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you so much. For um, BIPOC business shout out, we have um, Junglo. Started as a design blog by uh, Jacina Blakeney's tiny plant-filled living room. And this is directly from their uh, website. Uh, living room uh, back in 2009 and has since grown a lifestyle brand and a go-to source for junglicious design goods and inspiration. Um, and it's based in um, their LA uh, studio. It was a recommendation from a podcast that I listened to. It's The Friend Zone. And Fran is the one who recommended it during one of their conversations about decorating. And since I've listened to that, their, their podcast, I've had this um, business on my tap to just find it and like to later on purchase from. Um, since I moved to my new apartment, again, I'm still like trying to organize and, and put together like and decorate. So I purchased one of their, um, their bed uh, covers and one of their pillows. They're super, super nice. Um, especially as we're coming in closer and closer to the holidays. I think it's, I just want to challenge you all to like make sure that you are more and more investing in our black indigenous people of color businesses. As we mentioned every, in every episode, mostly uh, shouting someone out just because it helps, you know, and reinvest in our communities, um, help our businesses grow our vision just because, um, there's so many really great people doing great work and I want to highlight them. We want to highlight them. And um, especially when you're looking at gift exchange and stuff like that, I mean, there's a price point for everyone. So, I mean, invest as much as you can find businesses that match your, your price uh, range. Um, and I just really like what they're doing and, and support a lot of these businesses that are coming in with like really cool things and also giving back to the community in a sense that, it's not for a tax write-off. It's really because they're invested and um, the whole ecosystem, as Fran usually says. So um, check them out, and we'll have the link and information to connect with them on our episode for a caption. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicana code switchers at gmail.com and send us your poc business conference and event shout outs and listener letters you could also record a listener message on anchor app and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes follow us on instagram at chicana code switchers and on twitter at x code switchers if you would like to support this podcast you can venmo or cash app us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you and don't forget, switch the code, don't let the code switch you. <laughs>